we've seen a lot of gloating from people on the left post-Trump Twitter ban talking about how, well, you know, Twitter's a private company, so how can conservatives or, or people on the right possibly be irritated by the actions of a private company? Um, and I think it, it kind of speaks to what your conception of free speech is. You can have a very thin conception of free speech, which is purely focused on direct government intervention and censorship of, of what we can say, or you can have a, a kind of thicker version of free speech, which... Um, which talked about the importance of a free exchange of ideas and, and open debate more broadly um, that isn't just centered on the kind of morality of, well, companies can do what they want. And I certainly place myself on, on the thicker end of, of that. Welcome to the Pim Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research. In this week's first episode of 2021, I'll be joined by my co-hosts and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and our boss, ASI director, Eamon Butler. Now, Eamon, of course, I should go to you first when I ask, how was your Christmas and New Year's? Uh, it was the dullest and most boring I've ever had, I think. Uh, there was just uh, just the four And you the work at the ASI, so that says something. <laughs> just the four of us. Uh, but I did learn some new uh, party tricks, uh, I have to say. Uh, one is climbing the wall and another is uh, eating the carpet. But apart from that, yes, it was pretty boring. <laughs> Very good. And what about you, Daniel? I had probably the best Christmas and New Year's ever because... Um, in the first time in my life, I didn't have to spend either of them with my family or friends <laughs> or anyone, in fact. Uh... I, I was very blessed and privileged to have to spend it by myself uh, because the new COVID lockdown came into force the day before I was meant to go back and see my family in Essex. But uh, but hey-ho, it's, it's all good. And we're, we're back in 2021 with a vengeance doing your part to stop the spread. Well, at the very least, I think there's no better company than than one's own, Daniel, so I'm glad you've proven it. I, I got my, uh, grand, my grandfather always used to, said, always used to say to him, Why you, you stand alone there and talking to yourself. Why do you do that? He said, I like to, to talk to an intelligent person and hear an intelligent person talk. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I should probably lay out my own cards, which is I was extremely privileged and lucky to make it back to Australia in, in time for, for New Year's. So I got to spend it with some family, which was very nice in a slightly locked down, but not very locked down Australia after a delightful two weeks in quarantine. It was, it was all worth it, though, I'm going to say. It was all worth it. But let's let's get the show on the road. Talking of uh, moving around the world, let's have a bit of a chat. First of all, we're going to be discussing this week about what to expect in 2021 the ongoing vaccine rollout, and the recent chaos in the United States Capitol. Almost all would agree that 2020 was a terrible year for humanity. With the new year ahead of us, what can we expect to rapidly improve? Or is it just going to be more of the same? First off, let's start with a a classic of the Adam Smith Institute podcast. Um, Eamon, what is your view about the, the current state of the economic recovery? We worked on a paper uh, early last year about the damage that was being done by the first lockdown. Now that feels another world ago in terms of economic damage. Well, what's, your, what's your current view on, on that matter? Has it changed at all since, I suppose, your relatively pessimistic take um, early last year? Yeah, well, I, I was just actually going to say that, you know, you know, you say the 2020 has been the worst year that we've ever had. I'm not sure about that um, because I think that in terms of the medical prospects, you know, we, we, we are pioneering mRNA uh, 
epidemiology has just come forward in leaps and bounds. I think, you know, we're actually going to be in a much better place to keep ourselves healthy in the future. But when it comes to the economy, yes, I was very pessimistic because I see the economy not as a kind of machine that you switch on and off, uh, but as a series of relationships. That's what an economy is all about. And it seemed to me that if you were closing down cafes and pubs, let's say, then all of their suppliers and their suppliers and their suppliers and their suppliers, those networks get disrupted and you can't it's not something that you can just rebuild uh, very quickly because it takes often years to build up a business and to learn who who are good suppliers and which who are good customers and and things like that so i thought it might take a long time so i was rather surprised when the economy economy bounced back in the summer quite so quickly and i'm wondering whether things might have changed. Perhaps our networks these days are actually more solid than they used to be because uh, we're all connected over the internet. So we never really lose touch with people. And so you can maybe rebuild business networks quicker than you used to be able to. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's probably also worth giving credit where credit's due in the sense of the, the government's programs were pretty well designed, particularly at the speed at which they were put together in terms of furlough, in terms of loans. And they were effectively designed to deal with the issues that we're talking about here, which is to keep businesses alive for for the duration so that those relationships don't die. Um, I still think there's some risks that you could see when when all that support is withdrawn, the stilts of a lot of businesses will come come crashing down, particularly since there's a lot of indebted businesses um, and the government's encouraging them to take on that debt. And that, that could be quite a difficult prospect for them going forward. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of people who think they're on furlough and really they've been fired. That's the problem. And I think we will have quite a surge in uh, unemployment. And that's why it's absolutely essential to have a kind of growth, growth agenda so that we can get people back into work. That's right, isn't it, Daniel? That it's, it's a go-for-growth approach as opposed to what the government's often been releasing some murmurings about, which is raising taxes. Yeah, I think what the government has done well is the sort of things you mentioned around furlough and, and trying to preserve the economy. Now, as we've said, it remains to be seen how much of that is actually preserving jobs and employment versus how much is, is going to end up uh, once those stilts are removed being very dangerous. I think particularly of um, the travel industry is a place that looks to be under threat. But yeah, you mentioned the kind of prospect of tax rises and this is not something that is being recommended by people from pretty much across the economic spectrum uh, spectrum of economic views. We had the Times report over the weekend that uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak is looking at tax rises in the upcoming budget in March, um, although there seems to be some exceptions to that. There's been a lot of campaigning um, recently. I think the, the Times itself and the Telegraph also launched a campaign to preserve the stamp duty holiday, which is, as we've argued in our reports, one of the most, if not the most harmful taxes on the books in terms of stultifying economic growth and really uh, making it difficult for people to switch between different houses and and downsize, etc. But we've got this very weird situation where the Labour Party, um, Annalise Dodds tweeted uh, over the weekend, they're more wary of tax rises than the Conservative Party is. And they're the ones reminding Rishi Sunak that uh, all the august organisations of economics that we, of course, at the ASI don't always agree with, um, but in, in this case, seem very much in lockstep with the OECD, uh, the European Central Bank, the IMF. Uh, they've all warned against premature tax rises because 
now is not the time to be hobbling the economy uh, and hobbling the recovery that we're hoping to see with the vaccine rollout that we'll, we'll get on to later, hopefully giving us a chance to lift some of these lockdown restrictions. Yeah, if you look at, um, well, just walk down any high street, uh, walk through any industrial estate, and you can see the number of businesses that have, that have closed down. We've got to grow new businesses. You know, it's not just a case of reviving ones that are, that are shut. It's You've actually got to create new ones. And um, to, at the end of last year, I wrote a book on uh, entrepreneurship for our friends at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And one of the things I discovered from doing that is just what a killer uh, taxation is uh, for people who want to start a new business, because starting a new business is a risk. And if you're adding tax to that and you're saying, right, well, yes, uh, any returns you make, we're going to take some tax off, that just increases the risk because you've got to make more money in order to 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 get to what the first number you thought of. So um it really is a killer and more so really than regulation but um we, we can't be raising taxes at this stage and i think uh we've got to take the long view here and it, it is a bit a bit like after the second world war yeah we knew we'd been in debt for an awful long time but if you are um growing your economy fast and you're investing in good things and creating jobs and employment and prosperity and all the rest of it uh then it doesn't matter whether you have uh debt as long as you can pay pay the interest on that debt and so interest rates are are a concern but uh it doesn't look as if they're going to be rising anytime soon right it's something we mentioned in one of i think one of last year's podcasts that now we have historically low borrowing costs and of, of all the times to be getting into to more debt and, and staving off tax rises for the benefit that they bring now is the time now uh, interest rates hopefully they don't keep up Rishi Sunak at night anymore like he said last year but if they do they shouldn't be um, talk of the chance of them being kept up at night is really concerning and if they do start to rise in the end and we do have to start worrying about borrowing costs again it'll probably be because growth is back, um, which look, in uh, itself is, you know, mission accomplished. Look, I really do hope Rishi gets a good night's sleep every night. I think it's very important for his uh, <laughs> mental well-being and his ability to do his job. But but on a serious note, I mean, I don't think the danger in this necessarily we're going to see tax rises this year. I think there's this underlying risk that the government's fiscal position will, uh, despite our best hopes in terms of, going for growth in terms of doing great deregulatory things that could encourage businesses and cutting taxes, there could be a bit of a fiscal issue if the economy is substantially smaller um, and the government just wants to keep in spending. And this government is, uh, whether we like it or not, a a big spending old style Tory government uh, that that doesn't seem to have much interest in in cutting things on the spending side of Um, the problem is, of course, as we've said, Increasing taxes will be quite disastrous for the longer term size of the economy. I just want to move on, uh, last time we chat, a bit more of a chat about where we think some of the other kind of permanent post COVID changes could be. So there's a few things that come to mind. Uh, one is about something like travel. Are we going to see a decrease in travel? Are we going to see people going out less and being more insular because they've, you know, gotten used to spending more time at home? Um, or are we going to say the complete opposite, Eamon? Are people going to be out there partying every day of the week once this is all over? <laughs> well, I think they're going to be partying every day of the week, but they won't know what to do at parties because they've forgotten. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah I, look, I think things will return pretty much normal. I think, yes, there are a number of businesses who've discovered they don't really need big offices in central London. Uh, they can have people coming in from time to time uh, and have group events. 
but in fact, people do actually work quite productively from home. There are limits to things like that, because I, I think particularly with new people, if you're taking on a new person, uh, the only way in which they really uh, understand the heart and soul of a business um, is to be there with their colleagues chatting around the, the water cooler and uh, uh, finding out how things actually work as opposed to what's written in the manual. So I think uh, people will actually want to get back into into their offices. I think people will want to get back uh, uh, flying, traveling again, but of course, um, in terms of holidays and things like that, well, uh, a lot of exotic uh, places I think are likely to have the virus for quite a long time, and because the the um, vaccinations won't be so quick, so I think it might be a, a little time before we get back to our holiday travel. Yeah, and just on the travel point, whilst it's true that we're we're likely to want to get back to, to going on holiday and and traveling when we are able to and when there are countries that perhaps have also tackled the virus as effectively as, as we are now doing, the question is whether the industry is going to be there in the same capacity to, to supply that demand. And we've seen quite recently, both in the UK and the US, the, the kind of industry groups in the airline industry talking about how, well, we're, we're pretty screwed here. Um, and I think in the case of the, the US, now they would say this, wouldn't they? But they're saying they need another 70 or $80 billion worth of uh, government aid just to stay afloat as an industry. Now, as I said, I would take that with a pinch of salt. Um, obviously, any industry group is going to say they need more money. The, the think tank industry also requires uh, 70 to $80 billion additional uh, pounds. Oh, definitely, to, yeah. To, yeah. Keep to be alive. concentrated yeah. in yeah. the coffers of the Adam Smith yeah. Institute. <laughs> we actually, for the importance <laughs> of doubt, which will let our listeners know that we haven't taken any government money uh, during this time. We, we never take government money at, at any time. Um, I, I think, Amy, you're, you're fundamentally right, which is that um, people will return to their old behaviour. There was this... Um, a kind of hilarious case during World War II that British scientists were concerned that if you allowed people to go down and bunker in tube stations, that they'd become kind of tunnel rats and never go up again. And of course, we knew that was pretty absurd. Uh, and, and people will have a, a want to see each other again to go out again. I think this, the, the most likely sticky behaviour will be working from home and the kind of implications of that for where people live, for where they spend their money, um, in terms of the kind of businesses that they need or want, will we'll change the nature of the economy over time. Um, there could also be a reduction in business travel. I think to some extent, Zoom might have superseded some business travel, not all business travel, but at least some, um, it, because we've, we've kind of shown video conferencing works pretty well. So I think we're going to see, almost only see some kind of changes around the edges, but I'm more, more looking forward to a kind of hedonistic, uh, roaring 20s celebratory time post-COVID um, kind of in a similar way to we saw the roaring 20s after World War II and the Spanish flu is people just mm. kind of want to go a little bit crazy perhaps not hopefully not too crazy but yeah and, 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 and look how look how people are feeling at the moment I mean we're all you know as I say I'm climbing the wall um, uh, because um, we're missing that human contact and that's, that's very important to people and they, and they want to get back and, and they will um, sit for half an hour in the train in a crowded train or stand in a crowded train um, in order to have that uh, contact during the day. Daniel, one for you here. Are we concerned at all about the kind of divisions that the COVID has created in society? Obviously, we already had Brexit divisions, but now we've got this new phenomenon on Twitter, or the, the smiley face. Um, is this going to become something permanent or is this perhaps just another culture war we're going to move on from and we'll fight more culture wars in the future? Well, it does seem like that, that cultural identity of being sceptical of 
lockdowns more broadly and maybe being a little skeptical of the, the kind of negative effects of COVID and, or the, their magnitude at the very least. That does seem to be solidifying over time as this crisis continues. And it, it, at the start of the crisis, there was, a, you know, the same debate, but it wasn't quite so split down partisan lines. There wasn't people making a living or, or kind of being a go-to commentator for being pro or anti-COVID. So it does seem like this is something that's a, a key part of some people's political identity. Uh, and I mean, as we saw in the Brexit debate, this is something that can be very persistent and, and kind of exposes uh, other political tribes. So, you know, people who tend to be of the, the smiley face brigade tend to have views that in, in many cases uh, are quite closely aligned with as at the Adam Smith Institute and that's you know broad classical liberalism skepticism government power uh, now I think that the, the kind of smiley face brand of anti-lockdown Twitter and and wider society take things way too far and often have some, some very mistaken beliefs about the effects of COVID and things like that but my kind of worry here to be honest is that some of the more extreme uh, anti-lockdown proponents seem to be giving liberalism uh, a bad name more broadly. Now, there's perfectly valid points to be made about uh, worries about the, the lockdown's economic effects. And we, we've had this debate time and time again on the podcast. We've had people from different sides of that debate on. Um, but we've had sensible people from different sides of that debate on. For example, you look at Sam Bowman and Chris Snowden, who are both good friends of the podcast. My worry is that the the fringe elements of the anti-lockdown side um, are starting to solidify the identity of being uh, a libertarian or a classical liberal because they're the most vocal proponents against uh, excessive government power. And I, for one, am concerned that our, our kind of brand is going to be associated with them when, when we have slightly different views on various issues like this. Well, um I think that, you know, I think that people have always, uh, throughout history, read different papers that give you different uh, views. And there's sort of left-wing papers and right-wing papers and all of that kind of stuff. So there always was that sort of tribalism in the way that people get their news. Uh, I think it's probably accelerated, um, given social media and so on, where it's very easy just not to hear the other side. Uh, and I think uh, you've got easier access as well, so that uh, nutcases uh, can can get on the, the media and be taken seriously um, uh, much more much more easily than than in the old print media uh, days, when at least you had somebody looking through stuff to see whether it was crazy or not. Um, but now with direct personal access, you know anybody can say anything, however crazy. Um, so I think that's one problem. And I think um, another problem is actually the whole anti-free speech movement. I think that, again, pushes people into um, into particular communities, so to speak, that if you can't get your uh, views out on uh, on Twitter, then you'll go to some other medium uh, which, should, which doesn't mind. So I think that, again, uh, is fragmenting people into different uh, groups and different social media. So they never actually talk to each other at all. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll come back to this later in terms of the, the Trump Twitter ban and the implications from that. Mm. We've definitely got this tendency, although that's not a traditional free speech issue in terms of the government clamping down on speech, uh, we are seeing some very interesting implications on debate and the, the way we discuss ideas and 
and something you know point we've made repeatedly on this podcast is somebody like the World Health Organization or the Gulf England consistently provided terrible advice uh, at the start of the pandemic on things like aerosol spread or masks, uh, which they've now reversed their views on. So that there's there's a need clearly for debate about those different issues. And the epidemiologists, you know, got egg on their face big time. I mean, many of them made ridiculous uh, uh, predictions. Um, so yes, you know, we learn by we learn by debate. So it's good to, good to have an open debate. And and it, if only we could keep that uh, sensible. And 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 that, as I say, is the problem that people have very easy access to the media, and they can make themselves look informed, even if they haven't got the foggiest idea how these things work. At the time of recording this podcast, the UK has now delivered a total of 3.8 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to the general population. Uh, After a slow start, the NHS is now claiming to be doing 140 jabs per minute, which equates to nearly 200,000 every single day. Uh, And it was two weeks ago that the the ASI's landmark report, Worth a Shot, gave a comprehensive overview of how we can help accelerate the vaccine rollout that we're currently seeing. Uh, Matthew, it seems like we're doing fairly well now, but it wasn't always like this, was it? Hmm. I mean, so the UK obviously deserves, I think, a lot of kudos and congratulations for uh, how much it has prioritised the vaccination process and the, the approval of vaccinations. Of course, the UK was the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer vaccine um, and is doing substantially better in terms of at the speed of vaccination than almost any other country, Uh, certainly much better than countries in in the European Union that have, uh, there's been a lot of clear controversy over the slowness of the central procurement process by the EU. And there's also been um, some concerns about um, the speed in the US, particularly in individual states. Um, But what we noticed, and and I wrote this report worth a shot with uh, James Lawson and and Jonathan Kitson, who are both now ASI fellows, uh, was that the UK's um, speed of vaccination, particularly in the first kind of three to four weeks, was kind of disappointingly slow. Uh, so you talk there about how uh, the UK um, uh, is doing something like 200,000, 300,000 vaccinations uh, a day, one day last week. At the time, the UK was doing just 300,000 vaccinations a week. And, and we thought that, that was um, far too slow. And it, and it would take something to like the end of 2022 at that early speed in order to finish the vaccinations of the phase one of the the kind of most vulnerable groups. Um, and in fact, what we said as well is it was 10 times slower than Israel. Uh, Israel is a system, has a, a very good public health system and a very good healthcare system in which you have kind of four competing NHSs. So you have four different choices for healthcare provider and each one of those four was competing to do vaccinations as quickly as possible. And uh, we, we kind of contrasted that to the NHS, which is doing vaccinations in an excessively centralized and bureaucratic way, which might sound very familiar to listeners of this podcast. It was very similar to how Public Health England handled uh, testing and tracing at the start of the pandemic, particularly um, shared features include rebuffing help from the private sector and, and also not getting in, involved with armed forces and, and volunteering. And we, we spoke to 22 ways to speed up the vaccine rollout, including things like using the armed services to a greater extent, creating driving clinics, providing 24-7 vaccination centres, um, using existing pharmacies that, that have experience providing flu jabs to, to wash the jabs. Um, we, we've just done some recent analysis and we've found uh, the, the governor's already taken steps on half of our 22 recommendations, so has taken some steps on 11 of our recommendations, um, including the trialling of 24-7 vaccination centres by the end of the month. 
Um, and we think the, the government is making some excellent progress here. And we've already seen an acceleration of vaccinations. As I was saying a second ago, we've reached up to 300,000 a day. Um, that could finally mean that the government reaches its kind of stretch goal of 2 million a week. Um, all excellent goals. We'd like to see them go even faster. So we've been talking about a 6 million per week target, kind of following in the same um, speed as Israel. And we think that's possible if you really take uh, an all, all hands on deck approach, a, a wartime approach in terms of utilizing every resource you can to as quickly as possible get out these vaccines to end the pandemic, to save lives, um, and to get things back to normal as quickly as possible. I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, part of the reason that the uh, rollout was slowish at the beginning is also the difficulty of, um, of vaccinating people in care homes, which it does take a long time. And we've done most of that now. So I think you probably will see um, the rollout speeding up quite considerably. And what seems to be holding it up now is the is the supplies of the actual vaccines, although there is a new one which is which is coming on shortly in the, in the next quarter. Um, so, uh, and, and again, I think, you know, some GPs, for example, are very good and efficient at uh, doing these things and, and some are not, and some have premises which are suitable and some are not. So I think you really just need to empower the people who are good at doing this and tell them to get on and do it. And Matthew, just a, a question, a follow-up for you, because you mentioned the kind of flaws or potential concerns around the NHS being overly bureaucratized and centralized with the vaccine rollout. Are you quite surprised that they have managed to turn things around quite quickly and, and be successful? Now, obviously, with the help of the ASI's recommendations, <laughs> has managed to do this. But it, it seems quite surprising that we are able, in, you know, in contrast to Israel's uh, healthcare system, to, to get this vaccine rollout so well done. I mean, I guess with these sort of central projects, it kind of speaks to where uh, a more centralized system maybe isn't the worst thing in the world in some respects. Well, I mean, I, again, I'd, I'd make an argument for uh, different kinds of healthcare systems providing equally as good, if not much better, outcomes um, than the NHS. But I think that's a debate for another day. I, I think, I mean, you've, you've got to acknowledge, I, I don't think I did properly acknowledge there, that the key difference now is the fact that um, there's a lot more vaccine and, and, and a much more easily transportable vaccine in the form of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and there were admittedly already plans to expand the vaccine rollout. But the government has also pretty quickly realised that, that things weren't going as quickly as they needed to go. And, and there's been some reports in the FT about conflicts between Boris Johnson and Simon Stevens, who's the, the head of the NHS, about just how things need to speed up. Um, there was some concern that the NHS wasn't willing to do more than the target of 1 million a week, which was the original official target. Um, and now the fact that they've managed to at least in one day do 300,000, which is puts them on target to do 2 million a week, um, shows that there is greater capacity there when you put pressure on. There have been things like uh, bonuses and something we talked about as well in terms of bonuses to GPs to uh, make sure they put the time in and the effort in to go and vaccinate people in care homes or stay stay open a bit later and, and get um, the, the vaccinations they need to get done. Um, done. So it is possible that uh, a system properly using um, every resource available can obviously, obviously achieve uh, immensely positive results, even if that is a centralised system. If they, at the very least, decentralise some of the power um, and, and responsibilities, as the NHS has, has begun doing with allowing pharmacies to deliver the vaccine and uh, as well as kind of a lot of help from military logistics, um, you, you can achieve great things.
And Eamon, you mentioned the kind of difficulty of deploying the vaccine in, in care homes and how that seems to have been largely surmounted at the moment. We've now got news that, that this week over 70s are going to start receiving vaccination offers. Do you think this is the right call before everyone on the over 80s list has been vaccinated? Uh, yes, it's uh, perfectly natural. You should uh, go down the age ranges. And I think that's good in terms of getting back to normal because uh, the deaths are mostly with people um, in with pre, uh, underlying conditions uh, who are of a certain age. And I think if you uh, can vaccinate people of a certain age and with those conditions, then uh, the rest of us don't have that much to fear. I mean, it, yes, it does It does kill younger people as well, but in far fewer numbers, uh, you know, something like a third of the deaths have been in, in care homes. So, um, yes, once you've got that problem solved, then I think it should theoretically be possible to get back to normal pretty quickly. And uh, Eamon, I have to ask, as the, the elder statesman of this particular podcast episode, have you personally managed to get your first dose of the uh, vaccine yet? Are you still waiting for uh, a benevolent overlord of the NHS to give what, you that opportunity? Watch it, mate. I may be wrinkly, but I'm not crinkly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm, not, I'm not even over 70, so I don't qualify. And I'm fit as a flea, so I don't qualify. Um, so, um, yeah, I think I've got a, a little time to, to wait uh, yet. Uh, my wife, maybe, who um, has a, a chest condition, uh, you know, she might get it a bit quicker. And that sounds to me a very sensible uh, strategy, frankly. So I'm, I'm happy to wait, but I will turn up at three in the morning if necessary in order to, to uh, get my jab. Good stuff. Um, and would either of you, perhaps starting with you, Matthew, care to venture prediction for when you think we'll all be jabbed up enough to start lifting some of the present lockdown restrictions on on current pace uh, you mentioned well uh, on previous pace we wouldn't be looking at anything until 2022 i hope we're both feeling a little <laughs> more optimistic than that yeah I, at this point i'm a little bit optimistic than that um i read an excellent article from some uh, quoting some super forecasters in in unheard who were definitely more optimistic than that um, I think they were kind of looking at when the, the pandemic would be over in in terms of um, there'd be fewer than 100 deaths. I think the government will probably start beginning, and they've, they've said this, they'll start beginning lifting restrictions when the most vulnerable are vaccinated. Uh, and, and that means not even the whole first phase one group, which is people over the age of 55 and people with certain conditions, but even potentially when... Um, the the first few steps are done, so you know something like the over seventies. Um, so you could start seeing some lifting of restrictions in March and and a relative return uh, to normality probably in, into the summer. I would think um, when it's most likely that that everyone on the phase one, the, the, again that over fifty five group and and those with pre existing conditions are vaccinated. Uh, that's when the chances of having someone die from COVID declines by 99%. So you, you kind of get jabs into 99% of people who could die from COVID. At that point, the case for any restrictions, I, I think, basically disappears, um, even if you should continue vaccinating younger people to, to provide some kind of herd immunity. Um, you can definitely get rid of all restrictions once you've vaccinated the most vulnerable. Yes, I'm sure that uh, everyone on Sage will be telling us that we have to keep locked down till the end of the year. Um, but uh, I think that the thing with lockdowns and so on, all these restrictions, 
is they only work if they've got the public support. And I think if the public see that, well, you know, things have returned turned to normal, we've vaccinated all these old folk and people with health conditions and so on, so why don't we get back to work? And then they'll start actually doing it. So the, the thing with, with politics, there's no reward for taking a risk. So, you know, um, <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, what Sage is saying and in, in terms of the, the uh, incentives on politicians, they would lock down forever um, because it, it, all, all it takes is if it, if they're wrong, then and there's a resurgence, then they'll, then they'll get the blame. Um, but I I think that the the public pressure to get back to normal will be irresistible, and uh, thank goodness for that. Yeah, I think that's going to be a, a really interesting test of kind of uh, the the assumption that I've had throughout the pandemic is that that general public support for lockdowns and, and other restrictions is born of, of tracking the evidence that at the moment uh, that is the, the option that's required and I hope and, and also expect to see that once we get uh, the majority or that phase one group vaccinated then we're going to start to see more and more opposition towards these sort of restrictions. Uh, it would be interesting if slightly curious if there was still quite uh, widespread support for, for lockdowns and, and what that might say but uh, hopefully we we won't see that uh, and I think we'll move on to our final section of the podcast now. President Donald Trump has become the first ever American president to be impeached twice following a pro-Trump mob storming of Congress just a few short weeks ago on January 6th. I mean, I'm wondering if you think the kind of violent scenes we've seen are potentially kind of a new low in American politics, uh, uh, at the very least, perhaps uh, a new low of the, the Trump presidency. Uh, yes. Next question. <laughs> uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously so. I mean, yeah, obviously so. Uh, and, uh, you know, remarkable events that have uh, shocked everybody. Um, but the, the, the thing is that I would say... Yeah, despite all that, it's actually time to move on and, and reunite and, and not sort of go into recriminations and things. And uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, I worry that the next administration is just going to decide, oh, well, we're going to impeach Trump and we're going to make it really nasty for him. Um, and that's just going to irritate all of his supporters, who number many tens of millions. Uh, and... Um, make the make their faith in American politics even more frail. So, um, yes, it is a low point, uh, but let's move on. So, so I mean, uh, of course, they've already impeached Trump. There's just a question of whether or not the Senate chooses to follow through with that and, and re- remove him from office, although that doesn't seem likely since there isn't much time left in office, but they could potentially bar him from running again. Is your view that the, the Senate shouldn't try to take up that issue, that it's just a waste of time and that um, you're just putting more megaphone onto Trump and potentially enraging his supporters even more to no particularly good end? Yeah, I, I, I don't say that it's a waste of time and I can see that, you know, there is some justice in it. Uh, but at the same time, I think what, what you have got, and I don't think uh, the incoming administration even now quite understands this, is you've got Vast numbers of people in middle America, not on the eastern and western seaboard, but in middle America, who are just completely irritated and alienated from uh, American politics. 
and they see it as tribal and everybody's out for themselves and all the rest of it. And they feel that uh, these politicians don't represent them at all. And that is what Trump played to. Um, and I, I, I think you've got to realise that those, that those um, Trump supporters, those anti, anti-politics uh, voters, if you like, uh, number many millions. And you need to adjust the way that you pursue your politics in order to, uh, to, 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 to understand, to, to take account of, of their views. Otherwise, you're just going to have the same huge division in the country for decades to come. Daniel, what's your take on this? Do, do you hold Trump kind of personally responsible for it and, and think that he needs to be prosecuted by, by the Senate or is it time to move on? I I find this difficult because I, I don't like kind of blaming um, politicians when it comes to things like incitement, for example, the, the idea that you know, he was inciting his supporters to violence. If you look at the speech that, that Democrats tend to be pointing out and some of the phrases that they're talking about, he said things like, you have to show strength, you'll never take our country back with weakness, uh, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. All of these are perfectly kind of normal garden variety political phrases that you might hear in, in any speech. Now, obviously, the difference with Trump is that, you know, you have to appreciate the context that, as Eamon mentioned, a lot of his supporters are extremely anti-politics more broadly. So you could say that, well, you, you need to take his remarks in different contexts. But I'm always wary of, of actually looking at the politician rather than having any sort of moral focus on the people actually involved in the smashing the way into the Capitol breaking windows and, and beating police officers, etc. At the end of the day, the people that did this were, were those individuals. They weren't Donald Trump himself. And, of course, we do have, you know, concepts of, of incitement in law and, and they're perfectly reasonable whether they apply in this case. I'm, I'm sceptical, personally. Yeah, I don't think it's particularly likely that a court of law would convict Trump for incitement to violence, particularly in the United States, where there is very, very strong protection for political speech. And, and you have to very much be inciting a, a, a unlawful action directly. And at no point, and maybe you could say Trump was ingenious by doing this and knew exactly what he was doing and potentially he did, or otherwise he never intentionally sought to encourage people to be violent. Even, um, we'll come back to this in a second, about the um, clip that resulted in Trump being removed uh, from the platforms, including Twitter and, and YouTube and others. Um, Trump explicitly still supports the protesters, but he's very careful to say that it's time to go home and that uh, he clearly doesn't endorse the violence. Now, I think Trump is still um, morally to blame, in not maybe not legally, but certainly morally to blame. He is the president. He's the leader of the country. He was a leader of a movement uh, that chose to claim that the election was stolen uh, that fermented all this this ridiculous anger and created the impression that there was this conspiracy um, and that you can see a, a not direct link between what Trump said, but a, an almost direct link between what Trump said and, and the actions um, on the Capitol. And, and therefore, he does bear some kind of moral responsibility for what happened, even if he didn't explicitly act unlawfully inciting violence. Um, in terms of Eamon's point, I, I think that is an important point about the extent to which... Um, 
this is just going to continue to ferment divisions in American society. In some ways, there's actually a strong interest in that, and it comes from, from both sides, particularly when it comes to the media. Um, if Donald Trump didn't exist, the media would have to invent Donald Trump because they just sell newspapers, they get viewers on 24-7 cable, like you know, CNN and MSNBC, or even, of course, on the other side, in Fox News. As a result of Trump, he is just a, an absolute ratings magnet and I suspect even when he's no longer the president even after let's say he gets um, prosecuted or not prosecuted by the Senate in the in the impeachment trial um, he will continue to be a focus in American politics and and Trump and Trumpism and and that kind of segment to the Republican Party isn't going anywhere which I suppose kind of brings me to a question I'd like to ask you Amy which is where do you think next for the Republican Party can it um, move on from Trumpism or is, is this Trumpism now kind of a, a key constituency in the party has to appeal to? And then I suppose it becomes how can a party appeal to Trumpism while also appealing to a broader set of people who might not necessarily all be a fan of Trumpism? Uh, yes, as I say, there's all those people in middle America who are underrepresented. Uh, and I think, uh, no, Trumpism is here to stay because I think the TV debates um, uh it, it increase this. Um, I, I mean, I remember when Ted Cruz was uh, running against uh, Trump uh, for election, uh, that he, he, you know, he said, I wanted to be the, the angriest uh, candidate on the panel. Unfortunately, Trump was much angrier than I am. And I think the TV debates um, do bring forward people who are, if you like, good debaters. They they interject. They, they look uh, very strong in their views and all the rest of it. And quieter, thought, more thoughtful people um, just don't come through. Um, so you're getting presidents, I think, who are uh, who are good TV performers rather than um, good good presidents. And I, I I think that that means that since there are so many people who are underrepresented in the in the United States, that you know, angry people saying. Um, uh, no, we need to uh, to, to uh, drain the swamp and, and break the mold and do all of these things. Um, you know, they will be in the ascendant, absolutely, in the Republican Party. Daniel, where do you see the future of the Republican Party going? Um, yeah, I, I'm with Eamon on this. I think that the show must go on, uh, whether we want it to or not, both for the, the kind of incentives of the media, um, but but more broadly, there is a large group of Americans that that broadly align themselves with Trump's worldview when it comes to being anti-politics more broadly, uh, and also some of his, his specific kind of ideological policies relating to trade, relating to China, immigration, etc. These views have have always been in American society. They've become more prominent as of late, um, as the kind of challenges and uh, of globalization have become. Have come more to the fore. Uh, although saying that, if you look at polling, the kind of support for for globalization amongst the U.S. public is at an all-time high and has been rising on trend for several years now. But yeah, the the Republicans can't ignore Trumpism. Um, if they do, they they do at their peril, uh, and that creates a, a pretty worrying incentive for their selection of, of their, their challenger for the incoming president Joe Biden. So I. I I'm a little concerned about that. And, and I mean, I don't think this is helped by some of the, the response to to Trump and the, the Capitol protests either. We mentioned the kind of at the start the suspension of Trump from Twitter. And that's something that 
has concerned me, and it's going to produce that same effect of further disenfranchising the group of people that do support Trump um, and, and kind of pushing them outside the, the mainstream conversation and, and creating more of an oppositional identity and, and distrust in, in institutions. Uh, and these sort of things all ferment together to create the sort of results that we saw on January the 6th in the Capitol. Mm. I suspect, and we'll just come to that uh, question about the social media companies in, in one second. I, I just spoke of the question of the Republican Party that they're really kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. That you're right, that, that they can't dismiss. And, and let's let's separate out here. I think there's the kind of people who were, you know, stop the steal, extreme kind of Trumpian advocates. And that's not all of the Republican Party. That's not all, all, even all of Trump voters. In fact, I, I think a lot of Republicans were I'm pretty disgusted. In, in fact, even probably some of the protesters were, were pretty disgusted by the acts of the, the kind of violent mob that, that stormed into Congress. But you're right, there are a segment of people who are that kind of extremist perspective, who are Trump fanatics and and have this kind of almost conspiratorial worldview about the elites and, and the sense in which they are underrepresented. In some ways conspiratorial, some ways genuine. You know, There, there are huge issues with the disconnect between um, Washington, D.C., and, and much of the rest of the country. Um, but at the same time, for the Republicans, I think it's very hard to connect that more extreme base um, with the rest of the Republican coalition, some of whom include, you know, more moderate housewives in, in the suburbs of cities uh, who are strikingly middle class and um, or even kind of more moderate kind of working class Republicans who might not necessarily um, like Trump but be attracted to the party. And I think that's going to be the challenge for the Republican Party is trying to deal with the fact that potentially their key constituencies are, are in conflict with each other. And I, I'm not quite sure how they solve that. Uh, I think we've seen a bit of distancing from Trump by some key Republican leaders because particularly after what happened in Georgia, it's not clear that the Trump method works, that the Trump managed to get a majority once. In fact, he didn't even get a majority of the, the, the national vote of the, the popular vote. He managed to get a majority in the Electoral College and kind of just enough states, just enough for the right amount of time. Um, but it's not clear to me what the Republican path is ahead. Um, but I, I think it, it's probably worth moving on to the other fascinating part of the events and, and what has grabbed a lot of attention, particularly on the conservative side of politics, but even uh, received some criticism from the left, which is the decision of the likes of Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, and uh, something like a couple dozen platforms that have removed Trump. Um, we saw the ACLU complain, the American Civil Liberties Union, about the removal on the basis that it could lead to removal of other people. We've seen absolutely um, outraged conservatives from all over the, the joint claiming that these companies are acting with oligarchic power and uh, they've become too powerful and they, they shouldn't have the ability to remove a sitting president uh, from the platform. And of course, a lot of claims about the hypocrisy of Twitter, that the fact that you can have you know the, the Ayatollah from Iran or Chinese communist authorities spurting their propaganda, but the American president can't get on. Um, Daniel, I'm wondering what your take is on the decision of the social media companies. Um, can they can they do it? Should they be able to remove anyone they like? And then the question is, um, should they do it? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of gloating from people on the left post-Trump Twitter ban talking about how, well, you know, Twitter's a private company, so how can conservatives or, or people on the right possibly be irritated by the actions of a private company? Um, I think it, it kind of speaks to what your conception of free speech is. You can have a very thin conception of free speech, which is purely focused on direct government intervention and censorship of, 
of what we can say, or you can have a, a kind of thicker version of free speech, which um, which talk about the importance of free exchange of ideas and, and open debate more broadly, um, that isn't just centered on the kind of morality of, well, companies can do what they want, and I certainly place myself on, on the thicker end of, of that free speech advocacy. So I am a little concerned about Trump being, uh, being booted off these platforms, even though uh, it is, of course, their, their right to do that as, uh, as private entities, and, and it is, you know, in their terms and conditions, although... Uh, in the case of Twitter, I kind of looked at their justification was the idea that um, that Trump was glorifying violence. And you look at the tweet that they cite again, it's kind of it's marginal whether that's the case or not. Um, a couple of days after the, the Capitol protests, you saw Trump tweeting that um, 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, uh, America first, who have a giant voice, they won't be disrespected or treated unfairly. This is pretty dodgy. I'm not sure it quite qualifies as, as glorification of violence. But again, you know, that, that's Twitter's policy to decide. Um, and their other kind of justification for banning him was that he, he tweeted he won't be going to the inauguration. Um, so their concern there that was once again, he was undermining the democratic process. Uh, and I think the once again there is also quite important in that he repeatedly uh, undermined the, the democratic process in America uh, many times before this tweet uh, and Twitter did, did not deign to ban him for, for doing so. Um, now maybe he didn't do that on Twitter itself as much, so uh, although I'm pretty sure he did, um, so I'm not quite sure what they're thinking is there. But yeah, my, my concern is, is, is definitely very strong around the, the thick free speech part of things. My other worry here is that there's the same people that are, are kind of calling hypocrisy on the right for... Um, you know, for, for being worried about the actions of private companies, are also the same people that don't see the the kind any sort of equivalency between the capital protests and some of the violent um, protests that we've seen that are they're anti-Trump uh, over the past few years in, in America, and that we see fairly regularly from some of the groups on the hard left. We've seen lots of crowing about hypocrisy on the right, and, and absolutely nothing on um, about, about the same on the left when it comes to violent insurrection or, or protests and the like. Now, uh, you might, and I think with jump, some justification, say that the kind of the motivation behind these these groups is, is different. Um, certainly in the case of Black Lives Matter, for example, I think that there, there's an awful lot more justification behind the, uh, the anger around uh, racism and, and institutional racism in the United States. But again, when it comes to, you know, some of the, the violence and... Um, and, and violent clashes that have been going on, there just doesn't seem to be any sort of recognition that there's a problem on, on both sides here. Yeah, I, I think I agree with, with all of that. Um, I think, you know, the uh, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, uh, all of that violence uh, indicates that there are a lot of people um, who are seriously disgruntled uh, with things. And I think that the uh, what we've been seeing uh, on uh, with, with the Trump uh, uh, disruption, uh, Trump supporters' dis disruption of Congress is is the same. There's an awful lot of people out there who are disgruntled the way the politics work. So I think uh, both sides need to to recognise that. In terms of you know closing down uh, one one's person one person's account, um, I think yeah, well absolutely. Yeah, Twitter's a private company; it can do what it wants, and if uh, other people want to to give. Uh, 
everyone a voice, then they can do so. But I think the the media have been, if you like, bullied by uh, governments around the world for quite a long time now. And there's there's been pressure on them to remove things. When the internet was created, we thought, well, this is great. You know, we're going to have a completely free free speech uh, medium. Um, and it hasn't worked like that because governments have been uh, saying, uh, some, in some cases, perfectly legitimate things like, well, you know, you can't show images of, of child abuse and things like that. So we don't want to encourage that kind of thing. And it's a perfectly, perfectly reasonable uh, thing to say. But then uh, when you're saying, oh, well, you, we, we need to, to stop people from saying certain things because this is disinformation or because this is just wrong or because this will lead to violence or, or because this is a sort of violence, even though nobody's actually hurt, it, it may you know, cause some kind of violence that you can't even see. Uh, when you get to that stage, uh, then I think you need to go back and read your John Stuart Mill, quite frankly. Right. If you look at the capital protests themselves, to me, it's it's a really good example of how overzealous um, censorious social media policies lead to this kind of siloing off of some of the more uh, extreme elements of, of both the left and the right, and in this case, the right, because you saw these protests being organized primarily through uh, Parler, which is, you know, it builds itself as the ultimate free speech social media platform. And of course, all of these disaffected and um, extremist Trump supporters have, have kind of been uh, shoved off Twitter for, for various reasons, I'm sure some of which were, were perfectly reasonable, um, but, but some perhaps um, them doing so of their own accord because of gen generally Twitter's reputation as being quite uh, censorious when it comes to political views and things like this. Um, and they've ended up completely, you know, unchecked, unmonitored, uh, unexposed to, to any sort of counter-argument and they've been allowed to, to kind of get to this stage where the, the really terrible stuff has festered and we, we've seen the results. I, I think they have to uh, decide, are they platforms or are they publishers? And if they're publishers, then they're going to be uh, constrained by all of the regulation that's on publishers, publishing, which is considerable. So I think they, they need to, to work out which one they are. Look, I think it's it's pretty clear that w they're not going to want to be publishers, um, and it would it would certainly be pretty bad news for free speech if we started seeing these platforms as if they were publishers, because they effectively couldn't host any speech because they'd be uh, liable for every single post before they um, are even made aware of its illegality, and there could just be just huge legal costs to the platforms from from existing if and. The, at best, they could continue to exist with some quite extreme filters where they remove content. This is the whole debate over Section 230 in the United States, but we have a, a similar section in EU law and under the e-commerce directive that has been carried over into UK law um, about the fact that platforms um, are not directly liable. I think that's fundamentally a good thing, and I think it'd be much worse for free speech um, if we tried to get rid of that, like some people like Senator Josh Harley, the Republican senator, has has called for. What I, what I think is quite interesting here, beyond um, I think the excellent points uh, that Daniel, you've made and, and Amy, you've made, uh, about the fact that removing speech is not the way to deal with bad ideas and that it's not going to be particularly helpful and um, also the inconsistencies in Twitter and the fact that we, we want more debate, not less, is a sense in which, to some extent, Twitter was acting as as a kind of succulent 
of, of government, um, or at least of state power, that they were effectively signalling to the Democrats who were about to come into the White House, about to take control of um, both houses of Congress, that they would play ball and therefore wouldn't need more regulation. Now, I don't think it's a particularly good strategy because I, I think the more they start fiddling around and removing accounts and playing with content, they're just asking to be regulated. Um, and in the UK, we have talked about in the past the online harms white paper and um, the sense in which that there's a huge proposal for uh, a regulatory regime on social media companies. Uh, I think what we're seeing here potentially is the end of um, the kind of relatively free internet as we know it and the move in to not just the, what the social media companies are doing, but under the pressure of, of state authority and eventually the kind of um, legislation, if not in the United States, where there are kind of more First Amendment protections, certainly in, in Europe and uh, the UK and even in Australia as well, there's new proposals for online regulation and certainly in more authoritarian countries, be it you know, Singapore or Russia or Saudi Arabia or else. There's just going to be a sense in which the internet just won't be as a free a place as it has been in the past, which I think is something um, quite sad and will lose something special about what the internet has provided humanity over the last few decades. Well, on that particularly gloomy note, at the start of 2021, hopefully, uh, just like our future podcasts, we'll get a bit more optimistic. The year ahead will also get a little bit more optimistic. I just want to thank you very much, Daniel Pryor, my, my co-host, and I had a programs at the ASI, as well as uh, Dr. Amy Butler, who's uh, director of the ASI. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. Thank you very much for listening to the ASI podcast, The Pin Factory. Uh, we do encourage you to subscribe in your chosen podcast provider and also if you're enjoying the podcast to leave us a rating to ensure that other people can enjoy it as well. Thank you for joining. Mm-hmm.